We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Greg, one of the pastors here at Redemption. And so over the last couple weeks or whatever, maybe even a month or something like that, we've had a hard time, problems with our air conditioning. How are you guys feeling out there? Is it, are you comfortable? Is it good? Is it working? How many think it's like, it's got to be above 70 in here? <laughs> no, it's got to be below 70. How many of us right at 70? Okay. How would we know? We'd go over and look at the thermostat, right? Makes sense, right? Okay, so a thermostat's one of those wonderful inventions because you can find out what the temperature in the room is. What if it was too cold? What would you do? Light a fire. <laughs> um, I got a better idea. How about we turn the thermostat up? Okay, so we do that because we want to raise the temperature, right? Okay, so now, if you can follow along with this, that in Scripture, there, there are something that operates like a spiritual thermostat. Things in Scripture which kind of identify what is the temperature, my own spiritual temperature. One of those things is praise. And that's one of the reasons we sang that song and are going to sing couple more songs that have to do with praise because in reality, praise often identifies where our heart is. So some of you came this morning with incredible excitement, like, like this week has been reminders of God's goodness, his greatness, his majesty, the way he has touched your lives and you've sensed his presence, his love, you think about his promises, you, you've clinged to them. And it's like, I just cannot wait to get there on Sunday morning. And when the service started, there was three of you, and you were jumping up and down on chairs and things like that, right? Okay. And then the rest of us probably kind of come here and go, we need a little bit of that changing the, the temperature, the thermostat, to help us get to where we ought to be. I wonder where you are at right, right now. Interestingly, the passage we're going to look at, and go ahead and turn in, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12 today. Let me tell you where we're going to go because I'm going to make this statement, which is kind of the main idea for this morning, and that is this, that praising God is our ultimate response. When we fully understand, when we get when we comprehend, when we realize and recognize and, and our hearts are, are molded towards this recognition of, of what God has done and essentially what his role is in our lives in the past, present, and future. When we get that, there's many different ways that we should respond. But ultimately, and actually where this service is going to end, is one of those ultimately looking at our future for all of eternity, how we will respond. We will respond with praise. We will respond with praise. And so, okay, if you've got your Bible, you'll notice that verse 3 begins this way. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, blessed and praise is synonymous here. As a matter of fact, but I'm going to tell you why I use the word praise. It's because, number one, the, the word in the original is basically it means to speak good or speak well of someone, whatever, okay? 
The second thing is that actually is used in other translations. The NLT and the NIV use that. So it's a legitimate translation to say praise. But the third one is it's probably more of like how we use that word, bless. Like we talked about in the announcements earlier, we talked about bless Loveland. And it's a blessing. And we give blessings to people. And we, we get blessed. And we are blessed. And you're like, what does this whole bless thing mean? Interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, same phrase, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, who has blessed us in Christ. Okay, so we're blessing him who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's a lot of blessings to kind of keep track of. Same word, but it kind of means something a little bit different. Because we feel blessed in our experience, blessings like for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it's things that we have received because he's done things for us. We can't really do anything for God. He is complete in himself. But we can give him praise. We can give him glory and honor. And that's our, that's our goal. And as a matter of fact, think about it again, as I said this. The ultimate thing that we can respond when we understand who God is and what he's done for us, his role in our past, present, future is to give him praise. Ultimately, to worship him with our whole being. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, this morning, I know that there are people in this room, Father, that the temperature is probably kind of low. Whether due to circumstances, whether it's possibly even neglect. But the reality is that right now it's, it's kind of low. And the, the idea of praising is just not something that really comes to the forefront of our minds and hearts. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would change our minds, that every one of us got where we are today, that we have this view of you, and we have this view of your mercy. We have this view, God, of your greatness. And it all falls short for every one of us. We need, God, to see even more clearly than even we've had in the past your mercy, your glory, your greatness, your goodness, your, your faithfulness, your sovereignty, your, your immensity, God, your, your love for us. I pray, Father, for each one of us that we'd walk away today with having you, because of the power of your word, raise the spiritual temperature in our hearts and minds. Such that, Father, we just couldn't help but praise you. We cannot help but acknowledge, even in the highs and the lows, that you are a God who's at work. You're a God who's done a great work. You're a God who promises to complete that work. And we, by your grace and mercy, get to be recipients of all that you have in store for us. Would you blow our minds away with that, Father, today? I'm going to invite you just to pray for yourself today. Would you just pray that there's something that you need to hear today, that the Holy Spirit would use these words to help you hear that and to embrace it. So would you pray that, prayer for yourself, and then would you pray for somebody else in the room, basically that same prayer.
Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks. All right, so kind of set up a little bit. So um, there, if we go back to the slide that just has that blessed be the God and Father, okay, and um, what you'll see at the very bottom, we've kind of identified a way to kind of look at First Peter and identifying four particular aspects as we go through this book, okay? So, and so we'll see God's role is in the purple, our response is in the green, present suffering is in the red, and future hope is in blue. And that's why, as we go through this passage, we'll see those colors illustrated up on the screen. I encourage you to continue to read, continue to even uh, memorize the, the passage that hopefully all of us are doing, chapter 1, 13 through 16, I believe it is. But so as we look at it, we'll see this. And so what I want to do is we're going to identify in this passage, 3 through 12, which interestingly is one sentence, <laughs> five things, five circumstances that we find ourselves in. And as we look at it, we're going to examine, what, first of all, what is the definition of that? We're going to define it in such a way for us to understand. Number two, we're going to look at what God's role is in the middle of all that. And number three is this idea of what our response is and should be. All right, so let's dig right in. He starts off, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. All right, let's take a look at that word, that phrase, born again. Let's define it. Well, first of all, let me just share this. The, the phrase born again, Peter would be very familiar with because... That's one of the statements that makes very early on in the Gospel of John, we see that in Jesus' public ministry, his first visit to Jerusalem, he's just starting to get to be known by people. And there's this guy named Nicodemus. He's part of the ruling class. He's a Pharisee. And he comes to Jesus late at night. Okay, Nick at night. There you go. And he comes late at night, and he asks Jesus this question. And they start talking. And Jesus tells to him, you must be born again. Well, Nicodemus is a religious leader. He's going to get rebuked by Jesus because he doesn't comprehend because Nicodemus's response is, how can I do that? How can I, be, I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Because he's thinking this born again is a physical rebirth, but it's not. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. So let's define it once again. This idea of to be born again is to be spiritually alive. Now, one of the best ways to understand what that means and its implications is to go to the other side of that coin. So I'm going to ask you to fill in the blank for me. If we, by God's work, become spiritually alive, at one point in time, we were spiritually dead. That's right. We're born into this world spiritually dead which means we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no hope, naturally. We're apart from what God, God's family and his kingdom. We are unforgiven. But because of God's amazing love and his mercy, he causes us to be born again, which means we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We're forgiven. We have hope. We're the holy and blameless in his sight. We are adopted as sons and daughters. I remember taking a bunch of lists from a bunch of people 
And one time during, the, during this kind of gathering of some leaders, I kind of read through the 88 things that Scripture says is a part of us that we have and are identified by at the point of our salvation. When we become born again, all of those things become ours. It's an amazing list. Two of them are coming real soon. Now, you may be thinking, all right, so this idea of that God has caused us to be born again. We've already talked last week about to those our elect exiles. Oh, this is going to be juicy. Some of you theologians are like, yes, we're going to get into Calvinism and Arminianism. We're going to get into this, this, this dilemma of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. No, we're not going to get into that. Because of why Peter says what he says is to cause us to respond specifically because he's already laid out if you get this your first reaction will be praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he reminds us that it is according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again this reminds us you and I could not do anything on our own we had no power to do this to ourselves. This is a work of God, which should cause us to go to our knees and to give praise for what he has done. In this section right here, there's really nothing that calls us to respond. We don't know specifically what that says from that passage. But we do look at, a little bit later in this chapter, verse 21, there is a response we should have beyond that praise, because in verse 21 it says, who through him, through Jesus, okay, are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What's our responsibility there? What's our response to what God has done is to believe, to hope, to exercise faith. That's our calling. Now, let's pause right now and go back to our thermostat. See, if we're born and anew and we are spiritually alive, that would mean that we are alerted and our hearts and minds are attuned to the things of God. That there was something that's happened inside of us that he's changed us and made him his. And so we would have naturally now this new supernatural desire to know God, to obey him, to trust him, to pursue his word, to get to know him better, to, to fellowship with other believers, to be encouraged, to have hope to view this world in light of who he is and what he's done. But I know that today, in the first and second service, there would be people who go, God, sure, yeah, whatever. That are not really stirred by the things of God. Let that be a thermostat indication. Let that may be something that, that signals to you, have I been born again? Has God worked in my life and even today at the point where he is doing a work that I need to respond in faith and trust and hope in him? Or secondly, maybe it's this, like I prayed for before, this aspect that maybe some of us have just simply neglected our walk with Christ. 
Maybe that's why it's like there's no excitement or whatever. Hey, this passage is going to point to things over and over and over again of why we ought to give him praise. Right here, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Number two, it says that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Let's talk about what living hope is. Let's define it. It is, it is active, okay? And it's an active confidence in what will be ours for eternity. We have a living hope. We have something that we will see and experience in its completeness in the future. That's that living hope. Now, we don't often use the term hope in the same way biblical hope is. We often talk about hope as something you desire, something you want. We might hope that the Broncos beat the Dolphins today. We, we hope that. Some of us hope that. Now, is that built out of reality or based in reality? Of course not. not. We're going to get destroyed, okay? All right. But we still hope it, and we want it to happen. That's not the type of hope that Scripture speaks of. Scripture speaks of the hope that we have with a confidence, with a certainty. And it's based upon who God is, his character, his faithfulness. It's based upon his promises. And it's based upon what he's already done. And that's exactly what he does. You see, in this passage, it tells us what God's role is in that. He says, we have a living hope. How and where is that living hope founded in? It's founded in through in through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where it comes. If we believe Jesus has been raised from the dead, then we know God is a God who resurrects. That's what he does. He resurrects. As he resurrected his son, he will resurrect us. And so what is our role in that? Well, I'm going to actually jump forward to chapter 3, verse 15, to tell you what our role is in that. It says this in 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And so here it is. It's like we need to know the reasons for our hope. If you were having a conversation today and somebody came up to you and said, why do you hope in God? What's the reasons for your hope in Jesus? What's your reasons for your belief in Christianity, would you be ready for that? Would you be ready for that? All right, so this passage is talking specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I thought, even though it's not Easter, let's talk about the resurrection, okay? And one of the reasons why is because it comes up over and over again in Scripture. We ought to know the reasons for why we believe in the resurrection. So here we go. Five reasons to hope in the resurrection. Here we go. Number one, he died by crucifixion. You go, well, I know that, but, but we're, again, we're trying to have reasons to understand. And so whether you would be um, or whether there would be uh, a skeptic, whether there would be um, historians, whether there be New Testament liberal scholars, uh, New Testament even Jewish scholars who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, there is now a complete agreement in 
this idea that Jesus died on the cross and was crucified and buried. And it makes sense. As a historian, you would know that an insurrection in, under Roman rule at that time, that person, whoever led that, would be killed, and they'd be killed by crucifixion. So that was understood. So the story and the, the report that happened would be widely known that Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, think about this for a moment. The disciples believed that they had seen the risen Savior. They, had, they believed they saw him bodily alive as a risen Savior. Okay? Now, that also includes two skeptics. Saul, who became Apostle Paul, Saul obviously was an early persecutor of the church, but then also was this guy named James who became a leader in the Jerusalem church. James was actually the brother of Jesus. You may not, maybe let me just share a little bit of story behind that. He was initially a skeptic. As a matter of fact, his whole family, if you look at Mark chapter 3, Jesus is doing this ministry and his family comes to him and they say to Jesus, you are out of your mind. You can almost picture James saying to his older brother, Jesus, hey, Jesus, I think you got this Messiah complex or something. That's a joke. Thank you. So, and, but in reality, he was a skeptic. He didn't believe it, but he came to believe that he saw the risen Savior. Number three, these disciples were transformed in a way that pointed to their willingness to die for that message. They were willing to die for that message. Now, lots of leaders of lots of movements have been killed for starting movements, but not ones who knew that they were lying. Jesus, they believed, had come out of the grave, and they'd been changed because of that. Number four, the resurrection was proclaimed very early, and essentially for the validity of this message, it was for the spread of Christianity. That was a central tenet to the spread of Christianity, that he rose from the dead. We see it, like, it all it took was three verses for Peter to mention again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was central to the message. And so we know this, that if it started in Jerusalem, that's the place where Jesus died. It could have been squelched right away by proving there he is, there's his body. It was a this is a hoax. They could have done that. Number five. Number five is this. The message of Jesus' death and resurrection became a crudal, cre- sorry, creedal taught, truth taught over and over again within two to three years. Okay? Think about this for a moment. We have the Old Testament, right? Or at the time of the New or the sorry, the time of Jesus, there was the, the Old Testament, not the New. So let's just say you're, you're going to the Colosseum in Rome in A.D. 65, and you're there to watch festivities, and you find out, well, there's some lions eating Christians, okay? Well, guess what? Nobody's going to hold up John 3.16 in the stands, okay? Well, first of all, you'd be next, okay? But secondly, it didn't exist. And even though by A.D. 65, many of the New Testament books would have been written, remember how difficult it would be to circulate these and copy these? It's going to take some time. And so what would happen in the church is that they would recite certain creeds, some certain statements to help pass on and to, to describe central tenets and truths from one church to the next. 
If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll see Paul make this statement. For I delivered what was given to me, I delivered to you. That Jesus died according to the scriptures. That he was raised according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. And so that's a part of that creedal truth that was spread, that was very central to the message at the very beginning. So, now, with the level of evidence, the, the, the circumstantial evidence, the physical evidence, and the testimonial evidence, you take that same type of evidence you put in a court of law today, that jury would say it's beyond a reasonable doubt. But it's still hard for people to believe, isn't it? It's because there's a spiritual reality that we live in. So, I'm going to give you an assignment. Everybody ready for the assignment? This is going to raise your, raise your blood pressure. Okay, here we go. So, this is what I, I want you guys to do. Okay? First service people were incredibly excited about this. So, someone in your life, family, friend, neighbor, coworker, someone in your life does not know the Lord, has not yet acknowledged Jesus has been raised from the dead. Okay? All right? Picturing some people? Would you this week, hey, my church is doing this assignment. One of our pastors asked us to do this, so I'm going to do it because it's an assignment. Say, I'm a, can I ask you two questions? Number one is this. What do you believe happened to Jesus after he died? And why do you believe that? Just to hear what they have to say. Don't try to start, start debates or anything like that. Just kind of allow the Lord to lead. Some of those people might ask you after they express what they believe, what do you believe? I do know this. When it comes to temperature... Philemon, verse 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith will be effective to the full knowledge of every good thing that we have in Christ Jesus. There's something about us sharing our faith that strengthens our faith because you remember the hope that you have. As a matter of fact, why don't we just pray for that right now? I'm going to ask you to kind of, in your mind, identify a person that you would love to have that conversation with. I'm going to pray, and then I'll give an opportunity for us to state the names of those people out loud, all right? I'll do the same. Let's pray. Father God, help us to have great faith. Help us to know the reasons by which we believe. Help us, God, Father, to be people who are willing to share that faith with others. And so, Father, would you open a door for a conversation this week that we get to have with someone who does not yet trust in you, who has not yet acknowledged the resurrection of the dead of Jesus. And so, Father, we want to pray that we would have a conversation such that you might open a door for future conversations as well. And so, Father, for this body right now, God, we want to lift up to you the names of people you already know might be in your sovereign plan 
creating a conversation to accomplish the purposes, purposes that only you can accomplish. And so we want to pray for the following people. Laura, Jack, please go ahead and pray those names. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thanks. Okay, let's talk to the third aspect, the third circumstance that we find ourselves in. Because he says this, he says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at this, verse 4, to an inheritance. To an inheritance. Now, what is the inheritance? What is he referring to there? Okay, when we first think about inheritance, it's very natural to think about something that we get that is ours, that's been assigned to us by somebody else. And this reality is that, as I mentioned, there were several things that, that, is, that are given to us at the point of our salvation. One of those is a promised inheritance. It is the glorious riches of Christ Jesus that we cannot even imagine. So let's define that. It's all that God has declared that is ours for now and eternity. And if you're looking up on the screen, there's a little phrase there at the bottom. I'm not going to talk about that right now. I'll come back to that. Because I want us to talk a little bit about, again, thinking through what an inheritance is and who gets an inheritance. Who gets an inheritance are the people who are heirs to the king, specifically here, who have been bought with a price and now belong to him. Now, you may have like a crazy Uncle Bob or something like that who's writing a will, and you wonder if you're in that will or not. And crazy Uncle Bob changes his mind from one week to the next. You're written in the will, and then you're written out of the will. That doesn't happen with God. He makes this promise, this, this inheritance is yours. And he writes it in the book of life. And he writes it with permanent ink, the blood of Christ. And that's why Peter tells us, when I talk about an inheritance... That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's not going away. You get it. It's yours. It's mine. It's ours. And we cannot imagine how great that inheritance is. What is God's role in that? He tells us next, he says, that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. God keeps. God keeps it. He preserves it. He protects it. For you who by God's power are being guarded. So he's also going to guard us so that we are recipients of that inheritance. And lastly, again, we see this idea of that. What's our role in that? Is this amazing how common this is? Through faith. Once again, faith. Once again, faith. Believing God for what he's promised through faith. And now, let's come back to the statement I want to return to. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, there's this idea of inauguration, okay? The phrase up there is like, it's inaugurated, okay, by our salvation. I think six times in this, in this book, this idea of the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus is referred to. And what it means is this. Think about this for a second. Next year, 2024, we're going to have this political election. We have this thing in the United States called presidents, right? Okay? And then we have this really fun whole year of trying to elect our next president. 
So I, I didn't look it up, but there's a, there's a Tuesday in November. And, of course, we all know that the very next day we'll know exactly who the president-elect is, right? All right, let's be hopeful. Let's say we do know who that person is. That person is president-elect, which means that they have coming to them roles, responsibilities. They get to live in this really kind of cute little white house and things like that. That's coming to them. And so you and I have an inheritance, but it's hard for us to grab a hold of what that inheritance is and to really grab a hold of that. But what is reminded here, what Peter says, is that, well, it is for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It will be fully ours and we'll fully grab a hold of it. That's what's coming. That's what he has promised. Then he says in verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. We're going to talk about that response of man in a moment. In this, he's referring to everything that he's described in the first three verses behind before that. He says, so, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So now let's talk about something that we're going through right now. This is not the future things that we're talking about. We're talking about the various trials, the things that we're going through right now. So let's define various trials. These are tests. You can see that later in the, in the, in the verse there, in verse 7, tested by fire. These are tests that we're going through. Now, what is interesting is that we looked at the, um, the overview of 1 Peter. We recognize that this is written to a people who are going through some really difficult times. Very much in the minority, culturally speaking, worldview, behaviors, and things like that. And so they're going through all kinds of tests and suffering or whatever. Now, what is interesting is that, is that seven times in 1 Peter, Christ's sufferings is mentioned. Christ's sufferings over and over again. A couple of those times, it is referenced so that we may know how to endure suffering. Because our sufferings appears ten times. And twice the word trials. And maybe that's why he says various trials. So that's what he's talking about. But notice then what he says is this. Because it tells us why God does this. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me share with you what I believe this is saying, okay? We're going to have to do a little bit of work to get there. That a God, God allows tests in order to reward us. In other passages, when it talks about testing and trials, like in James, to produce steadfastness so that we might be complete and full, right? Okay? We see that. But here, Peter references something a little bit different. He says that, that those things tested genuinely, that they may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if I had put the word, or he had put the word in, maybe found to result in steadfastness or something else like James said, that would make sense to you. You'd kind of go, well, that does make sense because that's where it results in of the work that God is doing in our lives and then therefore what results because of that. But in here it says results in praise and glory and honor. So those three words, we naturally think, well, that must be of God. 
That must be that we go through this, and so therefore God is praised, right? I think that's probably how we might naturally see that. But the sense of that is that, no, that praise and glory and honor is given to us. All right. You guys think I'm crazy. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 5, I'm going to look at verses 1, 4, and 10 to show you this is consistent with what Peter is saying. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. We get to partake in the glory that's going to be revealed. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you hear that? And then verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, there's that reference to suffering, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. What's amazing is this, and maybe this will help. Maybe this will help us to rejoice, to have hope, to trust, to give praise, is that in the middle of those various trials, whatever we find ourselves going through, as our faith is tested to be, whether it's genuine or not, and if it's genuine, there is a waiting for us on the other side, all of the things we've already described, but also praise, glory, and honor alongside the one whom ultimately gets the most praise. Isn't that amazing? Hopefully that helps you to, to endure. And to compound that and to add to that, he adds verses 8 and 9. Because he's reminding them, this is the struggle. This is why it's difficult. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him. So in other words, faith, faith, faith. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see what is in there. Our response is to rejoice, is to love, to believe. Because he's in the middle of what we're going through. Which leads us to last couple verses. And he goes, now considering the salvation that was mentioned in verse 9, consider this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Okay, this gets a little complicated. So concerning this, this salvation, there were prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, ours. And they, they searched and inquired carefully. What are they searching and inquiring carefully about? They're inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, that's another way of saying the Holy Spirit, in them, again, as they're being inspired to write, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Let me just stop right there because this is the last point I want to make. What God is involved in, what particular circumstance is this? And that is that he's in the middle of our proclaiming his gracious plan. You see, he prophesied by the, by the grace. Now, there are prophets here in verse 10. The very first prophet that we think of is Moses. Think about this for a second, that, that what he's saying that predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories as a definition is the death and resurrection of Christ there would be a death and resurrection. Do you hear that? A death and resurrection. And from the very beginning of Scripture, this prophet Moses writes in the third chapter of Genesis, just the third chapter. 
And in speaking about after the fall of man, which happened in chapter 2, he makes this prophecy about the seed coming from the woodman and her relationship with the serpent, Satan. That though the serpent would bruise his heel, he would bruise his head. Now, if you just had that, wouldn't you be one of those people that are like uh, searching and inquiring carefully, what person or time are you talking about? What is all that about? But you see, God is the God who reveals. He continues to reveal more and more and more and more. And it says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, and that is the good news, the, suf- the suffering of Christ and subsequent glories, his death and resurrection, that is the good news to you, which is us, by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This imagery even of angels are going, what is going on? But you see, we're on the other side of this, aren't we? We're on the other side of understanding what God has done as he continued to reveal his goodness and this this good news of the message of Christ. He allows us to be part of this, to proclaim his excellencies. Now, we are going to sing a song in preparation of communion. And in this song, it comes out of Revelation chapter 5. And it is a reminder of the proclaiming the good news, the death and resurrection, his victory, the Lamb of God who was slain and now is alive. And I want us to, I want us to sing this. And long, it's my prayer, to sing it in such a way that as we reflect on it, our spiritual temperature is raised because we remember who he is. Remember what he's done. We're going to sing, so the band, why don't you come on up. We're going to sing, um, and then I'm going to interrupt the song because I'm going to invite us to take communion together in light of the reality of what we have just sung. And then I'm going to invite us to take communion. And when you finish communion, come back to your seats and just remain standing and continue to sing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your the message of good news, the reality of what we what we hold and cling to is that the son was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. Because he took and bore our sins on that cross and he hung on that tree. And because of that, we can be forgiven and we are, we, we are reconciled to you, God. And worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb and greatly to be praised. Father, would you impress our hearts and minds on the incredible, matchless gift of your grace and mercy through your son, Jesus. I pray in Christ's name.